Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the King County Sheriff has lost the confidence of her deputies. Yeah, we are a rudderless ship adrift at sea with no captain. The political fight over reopening the economy. So this is not a change to the phase plan, but we are pausing it for two weeks as we continue to evaluate the changing conditions in the state of Washington. And the village people crash a congressional hearing. The Section 243 program has never received appropriations, so I urge the committee... Those stories on the way, but first, recidivism. It's a problem we've been dealing with here in the city of Seattle, King County, and the greater western Washington area for some time. Not only is it an issue with the people that commit crime after crime, but it's also an issue with prosecutors and judges, because are these people really being held accountable? Now, it's become a federal issue. Joining me is Como's Matt Markovich, and what's going on here? Well, we'll clear all that up in just a minute here. So we're going to talk about the case of uh, Jason Turner. Um, This is a situation we've been working on for a couple of weeks now following uh, his predicament. He is a um, self-admitted, at least to police, male thief. Um, He, for the last couple of weeks, he has been allegedly stealing mail from mailboxes in the Del Ridge neighborhood and packages off porches in the Del Ridge neighborhood of West Seattle for weeks now. The victims know his name. The police know his name. They know what he looks like. The prosecutor knows his name. I spoke with a postal inspector. They know his name. They're investigating him. But yet, he's been arrested seven times just this year, and each time, he has left the jail. Either the judge has decided to free him the very next day, or he made a very low bail after the King County prosecutor asked for a higher bail. So he gets back on the street and allegedly continues to steal. There is... We've run video of him from uh, body-worn cameras by Seattle police officers of him uh, pulling mail out of his pants and admitting to officers. I'm not sure that's the best place to put mail, but <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's running. beside the point. Uh, officers, he's told officers, yeah, he does it. And he's told officers, according to the court documents, that he does it just to find the money. Um, and so, so is he looking for checks for cash? What's yeah, it, what's yeah, he? that's it. That that's it. And and so he and uh, so. So we started following up on the case and wanted to know why is he continuing being released from jail and goes right back at it, allegedly, and everybody says that. We talked to people who have chased him down, literally. We talked to people who have confronted him on camera with their own little ring video, uh, allegedly stealing packages and grabbing the packages back. So there's plenty of evidence out there. The King County prosecutor has filed, according to uh, Casey McNerthy, the uh, spokesman for uh, Dan Satterberg, the King County prosecutor, King County prosecutor has filed charges in every single case. Uh, But every time that he's arrested, the uh, the judge has basically released him. Um, So where's the fault there? We asked uh, McNerthy if the fault they believe, according to the prosecutor's office, is with the judges. Now, the judges, as we know, are facing a lot of uh, backlog of uh, cases that the King County prosecutor is, wants to run through, as well as a limited space in the King County Jail. All as a result of COVID. That's right. And they're only really taking, courts are only really taking cases that are of, non, are of violent criminals right now. That's the highest priority. And people who are already in jail, who've been sitting there for not just a day or two, but for weeks waiting trial even on some very serious charges, may not be a murder case, but there are serious charges. So, so. so they're effectively triaging the crimes right. that are coming in because for the longest time we didn't have criminal trials here. 
That's right. And then you had the jails that had to be, for want of a better term, evacuated partially because of the congregate setting and, and COVID uh, spreading throughout those facilities mm-hmm. as well. So now you have this backlog of cases. 7,000 so right 7, now. 7,000 just in King in J- County. Yeah. And that's that doesn't count the municipal cases in the city of Seattle uh, or the cases in Pierce County or the cases in Snohomish County. So the courts are just overwhelmed as a result of COVID. So they're having to triage. And so I'm guessing mail theft, which isn't violent, isn't a priority. But isn't it a federal crime? It is a federal crime. So we talked to the postal inspector, who is basically the investigative arm for any kind of uh, criminal activity involves the post office. They're very much aware of Jason Turner. They've interviewed him. Uh, they uh, have built a case against him as well. Uh, but they've just chosen to send that case to the King County prosecutor. Now, we asked the postal... But isn't he violating federal law? King County prosecutor has That's no cr- jurisdiction there. No. Uh, right now, well, here's what people don't know. There is a there is federal law about mail theft and mail possession, and if you didn't know, the basis for a mail theft is and a mail uh, stolen, possession of stolen mail is ten pieces of mail from three different addresses on that person at that moment. Otherwise, it's not considered a federal crime. Well, that's that's a federal crime statute. But so that's that's the minimum. That's the minimum. Okay. State of Washington adopted that. So it's also a county, local crime. It's a state crime to have 10 pieces of mail from three different addresses. Overlapping laws. Yeah, so you have that. So, you know, the reason behind that, I'm not sure. You know, maybe it was, uh, and this is speculation on my part, but it could be a good one, that the local governments want to have more control over who's committing crime in their own jurisdiction and not rely on the feds. So... So we asked the uh, John Wegad, one of the postal inspectors, uh, who speaks on behalf of the U.S. postal inspectors in the west in Western Washington, or basically the Seattle branch, why isn't he going to the federal prosecutor? And he says it's on a case by case basis, and that most of the cases that go to the federal prosecutor are, have a bit more of a substantial dollar value involved. Um, so like a massive mail theft ring yeah. or something uh, or, like that. Or, you know, it crosses county bo- lines, which would makes it, or interstate lines, which makes it more of a federal case. A federal judge, excuse me, a federal prosecutor is more effective in charging this one person if they did crimes in multiple counties. So in this situation, Jason Turner's alleged crimes are only in King County, only in the city of Seattle. So that's a crack, you can say, that fell through. Uh, the criminal justice system on the federal level about this case. Well, then we have, do we have a crack in the King County on the state side? Well, what we just talked about, the county prosecutor has filed charges against him, but they're not, in terms of severity, with a 7,000 case backlog and jails all backed up because of COVID and this huge backlog at the court level, stealing some mail, uh, there's one forgery charge in there where he took a check and he crossed out, allegedly crossed out the name of the person receiving the check and wrote his own name in. Uh, I'm guessing that didn't go over well at the bank. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, and it's not really how you wash a check. You write your own name in. You know? <laughs> so, um, he, he, so there's a forgery charge there. But those have been filed. But again, it's not at a level where you want to keep him in jail. And he's shown a propensity, allegedly, to, to go out and continue to steal mail and the victims know seven times yeah um, yeah seven times uh four times he was released on his own recognizance literally went out a couple days later stole it 
In one situation, uh, according to the court documents, a neighbor found a bag of mail, and when the police looked inside the bag of mail, which was open and unopened, they found his court papers from when he had been just released from jail two days earlier. So it's not like they didn't know this was happening. So you have everybody frustrated in this story. You have, you have the victims who have chased him. Roy Hawksworthy chased him down the street, uh, didn't catch him, but watched him steal mail. You had uh, Rachel Klima videotape uh, him grabbing a box, you know, taking a box and chasing him out of the complex. You even have the deposition from the mailman, Hein Tran, who told investigators, he follows me all the time. And he watches him. So he's following the postal delivery yeah. person. If, if, if there ever was a case where there's so much evidence against one person, but it just amounts to not enough to, to, to really hold him accountable right now, given everything else that's going on. So that's why we found this story really interesting and started following up on it. So the upshot of it, where it sits right now, he was arraigned on Wednesday of this week. He was supposed to be arraigned on Monday, but apparently he had maybe some COVID symptoms. So on Wednesday, he was arraigned, pleaded not guilty. And now another bail has been set at $5,000. He's made, he may be able to make that $5,000 bail and get out. I don't know where he gets his money, but in the past, he's made two low bails. And that's where it sits. Wow. Matt, thank you so much, but don't go anywhere. The King County Sheriff has lost the confidence of her deputies. We'll get your take on that when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Trouble within the King County Sheriff's Office. We've been covering this for some time, and now a lot of Mitzi Johanknik supporters have turned on her, and you have both the rank and file, which we'll get to in a minute, wanting her out, but you also have the King County Council members and the King County Executive wanting Sheriff Mitzi Johanknik to resign. What's what's the push there? I think on the we'll talk about the the rank and file in a second, but I think on the county side with the executive and the council members, uh, the voters last November basically said we want a chosen sheriff mm-hmm. rather than an elected sheriff, and, and Mitzi Johanknik was elected. Um, well, and, and to to be clear. That that's something that's been sort of a push across the country because if a sheriff, and I'm not saying that Mitzi Johanknik is, is guilty of any of this, is if a sheriff is is uh, abusing the office, the only way to hold them accountable is through a recall election, and that's very difficult to do in a county of this size. Mm-hmm. So if the sheriff were to be appointed by the county executive rather than elected, then that county executive can fire her him or her, and then hire someone new. But also fire them, him or her, for political purposes. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, That's you know, the risk. That, that is the risk. And then you have to have a council that would have to back it that up even in the hiring as well. So what you have is the selection to appoint a sheriff. Which doesn't you ha- happen until the end of her current term. Right. But if she resigns or leaves you know, in another way, her odd job, immediately <laughs> that appointment comes up a lot sooner. Dow Constantine will have a choice as sheriff, and the King County Council has to approve that as well. So there's, there's a two-part thing there. But there's the political ploy in this. So you have council members who would like to have a say-so in the sheriff. You have the, obviously, King uh, Dow Constantine wants to have a say-so in who should be sheriff. And so you have that uh, underlining there on that level 
of why they would want the sheriff out and, somewhat, and, somewhat immediately. And a lot of that has to do with the situation with Tommy Lay. And if you recall that case, there was a, a, a King County deputy who shot and killed Tommy Lay, who was, uh, I believe, 19 years old at the time. This was a couple of years ago. Uh, and there was a lot of consternation with that case, whether or not he was armed. It turns out he wasn't. He had a pen, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Tommy Lay... Uh, unfortunately died uh, in in that instance uh, and then ultimately they settled uh, his family settled with the county for a lot of money but immediately after that settlement Sheriff Mitzi Johanknik said that effectively she didn't support that uh, settlement but she supported the officer or the deputy involved that shot and killed Tommy Lay. In the current environment with Black Lives Matter, police reform, that's not sitting well with a lot of the liberals here in this city in this county. No, not at all. And I think that's, but then again, I think that could be just a reason, use that as a a political move or a reason to get her out of her office prematurely by the, the politicians, let's put it that way. So with their incentive to control who's running the sheriff's department and then you have this reason come up um it just plays into their ploy but then you have not only johanknik's quote-unquote superiors she doesn't really answer to anyone and uh until someone's appointed she answers to the voters because she's been elected but her subordinates now want her out but for different reasons. A, a survey of the King County Police Officers Guild found that an overwhelming number of people wanted her gone. Now, this was sort of similar to what happened with John Urquhart, if you recall. They wanted, the, he had lost the confidence effectively of, of the rank and file deputies, and they backed Mitzi Johanknik in the next election. Now, they want Johanknik to resign, but for different reasons. This is more so having to do with leadership. Now, I, I talked with uh, Mike Mancineras, who was the King County Police Officers Guild president, saying that they just don't like her, her leadership. She lacks the leadership uh, skills for the job of this nature. Um, in, in particular, they accuse Mitzi Johanknik of leaving the department unprepared for the riots that happened last summer, sending you know officers, deputies, and, and SWAT teams out to handle what was going on at the CHOP, assisting Seattle police without the proper equipment. They also accuse her of, of pushing out longtime officials, longtime deputies and lieutenants that had been there. And and the quote that I recall uh, from Mancineros was, We are a rudderless ship adrift at sea with no captain. You know, I, I wonder, and this is just, just seasoned speculation on my <laughs> part here, how many, if you took a vote of the rank and file of any police department, any police agency, how many would have disapprove of their leader? I would guess a lot of off a lot of departments would be like that it's particularly noteworthy in this situation and i can't overstate this enough there's no longer going to be an elected sheriff by the end of the year so she's a lame duck sheriff Mm -hmm. she's not running for re-election and when you have somebody who's a lame duck in office they're not going to be re-elected or reappointed you think what are you going to do you're going to say hey you're not here for this world not much longer i'm not going to listen to you anymore so inherently if you have what we were just talking about, the rank and file not supporting her. You have the politicians asking for her resignation. That's just her now standing there waiting on her own time mm-hmm. to decide, when am I going to leave? I'm going to leave for sure by the end yeah. of the year because I have to. Should I leave sooner for the betterment of King County? And so, and so I, far she's resisted those calls. And she has resisted several times. Maybe at one point tomorrow, two months from now, uh, she'll say, you know, I've had enough. That's, again, that's just speculation. Mm-hmm. There's no inside information. She's adamantly said, I'm not resigning. 
but you can see the mounting pressure mm-hmm. on both sides, like you're saying. Yeah, and and I, we've to be fair, we've reached out to her, and and I'm sure you have as well on on, on the TV side. She is not an easy person to get a hold of in the media. She's not someone who who talks to the press a lot, unlike her predecessor, John Urquhart, who came uh, mm-hmm. from the PIO department to become sheriff, uh, or even Ed Troyer down in, in Pierce County, uh, they know how to use the press and, and, and work with the press. She's very quiet, lets her her people speak for the department, lets her hired public information officers, sorry, mm-hmm. spokespeople speak for the department in, instead of her. So we've offered her time, and we've asked her to talk. She just hasn't done so. But I would say when you have lost the support of your subordinates, and you have lost the support of the political people around you that are, in effect, going to be your bosses, you have no effectiveness as a leader. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do. You, mm-hmm. you, you've been essentially neutered. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you have to make a personal decision uh, whether to continue on. So we'll have to see what happens in the next few weeks and months. And again, we have offered Sheriff Mitzi Johanknik time on this podcast and hope to have her on sometime soon. Matt Markovich, thank you so much. In just a moment, the fight over reopening the state, even halting rollbacks, has led to criticism when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Well, the COVID pandemic isn't over yet, but we seem to be coming out of the woods, sort of, maybe be it looks like the counties the 39 counties in washington state will not roll back governor Inslee made that announcement this week that all counties will stay in the phase that they are in for the time being but how long is that going to last joining me now is Como's charlie harger who has been covering this from the beginning and uh, what exactly did the governor say well as you know jeff the governor had been looking at the same numbers you and i and everybody else has been looking at and, and those are the case rates and hospitalizations and when you look at those around a dozen counties in washington state were in danger of being sent back to phase two of the state reopening plan but governor Inslee this week announced he's going to put a pause on that for two weeks. This is not a change to the phase plan, but we are pausing it for two weeks as we continue to evaluate the changing conditions in the state of Washington. And Jeff Inslee says the fourth wave of the pandemic seems to have plateaued. Numbers are increasing almost exponentially as they have in previous waves. And we're not seeing as many deaths in this wave as the previous ones. And he says, basically, look, we got the vaccines to the right people first. Those people being those over the age of 65, and that's helped lower the death rate. So uh, how how concerned is he that we may see a, a fifth wave or anything of that nature? Because we saw in the past, whenever the numbers went up, and, and, and they kind of have been going up over the last couple of weeks, we'd see more restrictions in place. Why is it different now? Primarily, it is because we are not seeing the associated number of increased deaths. And so his argument is, if we're not seeing those increased increased deaths, what we will be keeping an eye on is hospitalizations and also case rates. What they don't want to do is have a situation where hospitals around the state, think of the large counties, the smaller counties, if that hospital system gets overwhelmed, then we have problems. We, He said, listen, look, look what happened in Ferry County. Uh, if you're not familiar with what happened in Ferry County, there was a large mask-free event, uh, what we would call a super spreader event in Ferry County, and the small hospital there just outside Republic uh, basically is filled to capacity. He had 
praise for the health department in Ferry County, very, very conservative county, they decided to voluntarily, as a county health entity, they decided to move back to phase two without having the state to order that. He says states or counties across the state, they are welcome to do that. uh, But at least for the next two weeks, that's not going to be a state decision. And that makes it all the more political because you have different opinions in different counties and in different counties in different phases. And and I believe Pierce County is still in phase two. Is that correct? Yes. I'm joining you from Pierce County. We are one of four counties in Washington state. So we have not only Ferry, but we have Whitman. We have Cowlitz here in western Washington, along with Pierce County. And in Pierce County, uh, the case rates, uh, he, he described, the governor was asked about that and Basically, Pierce County case rates are enough to be in phase one of the reopening plan with higher, at least on Tuesday, higher than uh, 350 cases per 100,000. So that is uh, certainly something they're keeping a close eye on. And uh, what we're seeing, too, is an effort in Pierce County to get the vaccine into more rural parts of the county. Have there been other counties that have looked at rolling back themselves? We are not seeing that. One of the people we've been paying close attention to is King County Health Officer Dr. Jeff Duchin. Dr. Duchin, uh, despite uh, the uh, health uh, director, uh, Patty Hayes, last week saying it's almost certain we're going back to phase two, Dr. Duchin wasn't ready to commit to that. Now, Dr. Duchin is the health officer, and he's the person who could very well make that decision and order the county back to phase two. He uh, is looking at those same numbers we all are, and he says he, he's, he's not feeling great about uh, the case numbers, but he is also noticing a plateau, and he greatly credits the vaccine. And he says it's time to take a wait-and-see approach. This doesn't mean we're not going back to phase, Jeff, but it, it does mean at least uh, until you know the 18th or 19th of this month, uh, that decision has been placed on hold. What about vaccine hesitancy? Did the governor talk about that because for some reason getting the vaccine seems to be at least somewhat a political issue with conservatives less likely to get it than liberals and that could cause problems that is a huge deal because you're seeing a softening of demand for the vaccine Uh, you certainly have seen the same numbers i have of there being excess doses at all these sites uh, throughout the the state as people are getting i wouldn't say fewer vaccines but the the desire for it seems to be uh uh, softening a bit so his message is uh for you to talk to your doctor to your healthcare provider, even mentioned, talk to your chiropractor uh, about the importance of getting vaccinated. So that is going to be one key component. I, I also uh, follow uh, Representative J.T. Wilcox, a, a Republican in the state legislature. And one of the things I find interesting from him, uh, his family owns Wilcox Farms. So what you may not think about is a lot of farmers are pro-vaccine. They see how that helps their livestock and keeps them at a a good quality of life. And and what he uh, uh, says is that his family, uh, they are enthusiastic vaccinators. 
he says, you know, he's a Republican here, a Republican leader. It shouldn't be compulsory, but everybody should get a convenient opportunity to get vaccinated. And I, I think the soft sell approach you're seeing from Wilcox uh, kind of reflects what you're hearing from Inslee and other health leaders, uh, not only ex- encouraging you to get vaccinated, but encouraging you to encourage your family and friends to get vaccinated as well and go over the pros and cons with them. Do we have any idea where we are as far as vaccination rates in the state and and where we want to be? This changes every day, Jeff, but the most recent number I saw was more than 40 percent of all people in Washington state are fully vaccinated. And that's not just those eligible. That's all people, including children. Right. And and more than 60, perhaps even closer to 70 percent have at least had their first shot. So uh, Washington state is kind of leading the way. They're on the way. And and so I I know what the next natural question is going to be, and that is, well, does that get us any closer to herd immunity? And uh, the state health secretary, uh, health secretary, Dr. Umer Shah, said we simply don't know because we've never had the novel coronavirus uh, create a pandemic. So they they are certainly hoping that we approach 70% of people being fully vaccinated, and that is somehow the magic number, and the outbreak is is slowed significantly, but that's not a guarantee. So their message is for as many people as possible uh, who want to do it to get vaccinated right away. All right, come on, Charlie Harger. Thank you so much for your time. You bet, Jeff. Coming up next, a former federal judge changes the direction of the Department of Justice when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Attorney General Merrick Garland told lawmakers this week that the Justice Department needs more money for Biden administration priorities, including combating domestic terrorism, racial inequality, and environmental degradation. Joining me now is ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. And uh, the first thing that I noticed with this uh, list of priorities is that That's a major shift compared to the previous administration. That is for sure. This is a huge difference from what we saw the Justice Department focus on. There was a lot of crime and gang enforcement when we listened to these types of hearings and testimonies under the Trump administration. And really, Attorney General Merrick Garland was trying to set the stage here for what the priorities are in the Department of Justice under the Biden administration. This was the first time that he appeared in front of lawmakers since he'd been confirmed. And he really laid out why they should increase spending for different parts of the budget. So essentially, the Justice Department is asking for this $35 billion budget as part of the broader White House budget for fiscal year 2022. And there are some notable increases in spending that hadn't been there before, particularly a $33 million increase for civil rights enforcement, including the protection of voting rights. This is something that the attorney general was asked a lot about in light of some of those laws that we've seen passed across the country, really tightening restrictions on voting. And the attorney general made the case for why more money needs to be invested towards civil rights and essentially towards racial equality and what the Justice Department can do there. So was the Trump administration focusing anything in that area before? I know they talked a lot about voter fraud. Yes, there was always funding for this. And the notable kind of difference is the increase. So, you know, and and I, I think it's important to put some of this in perspective. $33 million out of a budget that's more than a trillion. It's it's not a huge, huge increase in spending here. It's, it's something. 
overall, the the White House is looking to generally ask for more money for the Justice Department, about a 5% increase from the levels in 2021 as part of the Trump administration. And one of the bigger shifts, about $100 million, is actually going towards domestic terrorism. So this is a pretty notable difference as well from the Trump administration, and that the administration now wants to focus on how to combat this threat that it calls the rising domestic terror threat the likes of what we saw in January 6th at the Capitol attack. And certainly Attorney General Merrick Garland made the case that this is something that's only going to continue to be a problem and that this is something the Justice Department needs to respond to now to avoid more instances like that from happening. You mentioned January 6th. How much of this is informed by the incidents on that date? Yeah, a lot of it. This is still such a big topic here on Capitol Hill, you know, not only just because the lawmakers were the ones who were the witnesses to that January 6th attack, but because because it's clear that there is such a divide over how to respond between the you know factions in our country and the justice department is trying to recognize that you know that it has to try to recognize these threats before they happen and that there was a failure to do that on January 6th and even though the threat may have been recognized they certainly didn't act on it so the understanding seems to be a little bit more clearly that they need to put investments and, and resources towards this instead of just focusing on on outside threats. Uh, that's definitely something that we had not seen in the past quite as quite as much. Has there been any mention of white nationalism? Because that was sort of a, a central part of the January 6th revolt and attack on the Capitol. Yeah, it was. We I mean, just here in Washington, we've seen ongoing threats from white nationalist groups that we've heard from either the Justice Department or the FBI, you know, generally there has been a heightened awareness of the threats from white nationalist groups. Now, in the budget, this is not something that comes out for reasons that it would clearly, you know, make this a little bit even more partisan than it should be. However, this is a clear priority for the Justice Department. And and I think that the Justice Department, too, is, is aware that some of what it wants here is political. You know, there's also an ask for, another $230 million to combat gun violence. This is obviously a pretty hot topic in Congress right now. It's a big issue for a lot of American voters. Garland, in his testimony, called ghost guns a serious problem. You know, he really took a stand and said that this is something that we need to look at. We know that the White House is looking at executive actions on guns because any action in Congress has stalled. So it's clear that the the attorney general wants to take a role here that is a little bit more in line with the priorities that Democrats in Congress and the Biden administration has set forth, even if that could cause you know some backlash. And we saw that backlash in, in, in a hearing uh, in, in Congress. You mentioned that backlash. What's the reaction from lawmakers now that the Biden administration has outlined its justice priorities? It's mixed. I will say there's an understanding. It's hard to say no to more money to enforce civil rights. That's a general kind of understanding that, that that's a good thing. Now, when you get into voting rights, it's a lot more controversial. We have seen lawmakers very, uh, you know, divided over these these bills at the state level that actually tighten restrictions and that Democrats say are intended to suppress the votes of Democrats and of, of, of voters of color. And that's an issue that's really divisive here. So Garland going up and saying we want to 
put more money towards civil rights and towards making sure that voting rights are protected. Clearly, he's drawing a line there in the sand that, that is different than what a lot of these Republican-led legislatures are doing at the state level. But it's not much that Republicans in Congress can do. They're in the minority in both chambers, correct? Yeah, for now. You know, we we had this there. There's this very slim majority from Democrats in both the chambers. Already, there's thought there's you know talk here on the Hill about how that edge could be lost for Democrats in the House in just a year now or a year and a half. And all, you know, (laughs) there's always political gaming. So how much can be done to pass this broader agenda really, you know, without any Republican support? I mean, that's really what we're talking about all the time. Will there be a way to get any of these priorities passed uh, with this simple majority or will there be any bipartisan efforts too? All right. ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come, Donald Trump tightens his grip on the GOP and the village people crash a congressional hearing when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Well, Donald Trump's grip on the Republican Party remains tight, as it now looks like Liz Cheney, Republican from Wyoming, could be ousted from party leadership in the House. What's this all about? Joining me now, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And uh, so what is this all about exactly? Well, it's a five-letter word spelled T-R-U-M-P, Donald Trump. He is the guy who seems to continue to pull the strings in the Republican Party, despite the fact that he has no elected office and he's sitting at his beach resort in Mar-a-Lago uh, endorsing candidates. And, and not only that, but but members of Congress are going down to pay homage to him. The, some of the same members of Congress who said he was responsible for the insurrection are now saying, yeah, forget about that. Uh, this is the guy that we're going to hitch our boat to for the next couple of years until we win back the House and Senate. Liz Cheney's on the outs, not only because she voted to impeach the president, but because she continues to call out the president and other Republicans who continue what she calls the big lie that the election was stolen. She goes, it wasn't stolen. Every state in the union certified the vote, 60 court cases, threw out every objection to these election results, and Joe Biden is the legitimate president. Now, there are many Republicans who continue not to be able to say those words. Liz Cheney was not one of them, and that's probably one of the reasons that she's not going to keep her job next week when they vote in the uh, Republican conference to get rid of her leadership position and probably put in place uh, Stefanik of New York. So this is some pretty serious infighting. We saw this when President Trump first ran for office in 2016, and, and he's still holding that tight grip, as I said, on the party. Why is that? Why are people so beholden to Trump, even though he's no longer in power? Well, they still think he has the power to put them out of business. Uh, Republicans, uh, he has shown that some somewhat in the elections. And if he goes after you in a primary and puts his uh, the weight of his personality behind your opposition, there is a pretty good chance, because the Republican base remains fairly loyal to President Trump, that you will lose your job in Congress, which is why there are so many people that continue to go down to to Mar-a-Lago and and kiss the ring, including Ted Cruz. Remember, Ted Cruz uh, basically called Donald Trump a pathological liar when he ran against him in 2016. Uh, Donald Trump returned the favor, called him lying Ted, said his wife was ugly and his dad may have something to do with the JFK killing. Last I checked, Ted Cruz doesn't have any constituents in Florida. Uh, he's a senator from Texas, and he's sitting there having dinner with Donald Trump saying it's great to be with him. I, there's only real one reason you do that, and that is you fear for your job and you think Donald Trump's support will help you keep it. Have we seen anything like this before in politics? Because this really seems to be splitting the party more than anything, at least in the last 
20, 30, 40 years. I don't think we've ever seen party members get behind someone uh, who has been twice impeached and uh, whose own party members, some of them who are now supporting Donald Trump, said he was responsible for a deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. This is pretty extraordinary that this is happening. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. Finally, a moment of political levity. Congressional hearings may at times be boring, but spicing them up with the village people isn't exactly what anyone had in mind. Now, the incident we're talking about happened at a hearing on funding requests for energy and water. And as with most committee hearings conducted on Zoom, Chairwoman Marcy Kaptur started with a little housekeeping. The chair or staff designated by the chair may mute participants' microphones when they are not under recognition for the purposes of eliminating inadvertent background noise. But something wasn't quite right. Members are responsible for muting and unmuting themselves. If I notice that you have not unmuted yourself, I'll ask you if you would like the staff to unmute you. If you indicate approval by nodding, staff will unmute Unmute your microphone. Unclear to her or anyone else on the committee was that someone on the call was watching Down Periscope, the widely panned 1996 film starring Kelsey Grammer as a misfit submarine captain. If there is a technology issue, we will move to the next member until the issue is resolved and you will retain the balance of your time. The film was reaching its climax as the hearing began, and as the credits started rolling, Washington Congresswoman Kim Schreier testified just as the village people performed in the Navy. The Section 243 program has never received appropriations, so I urge the committee to provide $10 million in annual appropriations for that section. Now this went on for more than 20 minutes before someone noticed and got word to the chair, and by that time, whoever was watching the movie had begun another, 1999's Galaxy Quest. Um, we've been informed that we'll have to take a brief recess now uh, because we're having technical issues. And uh, we're going to just be briefly recessing for a second here. Uh, let them address those and we'll be back very quickly. Sorry to do this. This hasn't happened before, but it's a new age. So give us a couple moments. <laughs> now the hearing eventually resumed, minus the exploration of late 90s comedy. Now Roll Call reports a spokesperson for the Appropriations Committee blamed the House Recording Studio. The incident is being called a technical error involving test audio. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and for health, wellness, and more, take a listen to The Fit Mess with Jeremy Grader. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogula. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.